the National Archives podcast series. Maps, their untold stories. Presented by Rose Mitchell and Andrew Jaynes. This talk was recorded live on the 20th of September 2014 at the National Archives queue. Well, welcome everyone to this talk. I could say this launch, perhaps, of our new book, Maps Telling Their Untold Stories, which showcases a hundred just a hundred of the many map treasures from the large, varied and extraordinary collections that we have here at the National Archives at Kew. In this talk, we're going to be looking at maps in the archives and what that means, how we actually chose maps for the book from all the many millions that we have, um, and then we arrange them into chapters in history, you could say. We'll also take a look at who the mapmakers are and their worlds, what the maps tell us, and maps in the context of the other records in the archives. Maps at the National Archives. They have their own maps microsite at nationalarchives.gov.uk forward slash maps, where you'll find a lot more information. In general, we say about six million, or probably more, but we'd rather not count them. And, uh, of course, we have more coming in every year, too. They are records in themselves and they are also part of other records. Many of them are hand-drawn or annotated, so they're unique. And although we are the National Archives of the United Kingdom, there is worldwide coverage. So they reflect the British government's interests in places all around the world. And indeed, over the centuries, so we have seven centuries of mapping from the 14th century to the present... And here is the oldest map in the book, the oldest map in the archives, which is a 14th century Portland chart of the eastern Mediterranean. One can just make out, uh, this is Cyprus, this is Crete, there's the coast of Greece along here and the coast of Turkey along here. So sailors used the crisscrossing lines to navigate almost, well, seven centuries ago. So it's our earliest map and a very remarkable survival. And then our latest map. Thank you. This is the latest map in the book, and it was printed in 1953. So it's um, far from being the very latest map held here in the archives. Appropriately enough, it shows Antarctica, which was the last major part of the planet to be explored by humankind. And it remains today the only continent with no permanently settled human population. This map illustrates a file on political sovereignty over various parts of the continent and the British government's perspective on Antarctica during the mid-1950s. It's actually not at all unusual for maps in the National Archives to represent the British government's perspective on events at home or abroad. And this is because we hold maps here for very much the same reasons that we hold other types of government records. And as we will see throughout this talk, maps have been used to document many different aspects of government activity and interest. When we elected the maps for our book, we tried to reflect the diversity of mapping among UK government records. We agreed with our publisher that we would choose just 100 maps out of the many possibilities. And we had to exclude some from consideration because they were completely the wrong shape for the book's pages. They were too large or too long and thin or... Incidentally, our um, publisher chose the size and shape of the book to fit the kinds of shelves that you find in American bookstores which is also, coincidentally, a very handy size for British coffee tables. 
Fortunately, we have so many amazing maps that we managed to choose a good, a good spread of dates spanning seven centuries and a very broad range of places, from Antarctica, as just seen, to London, and from New York to New Zealand. And we even squeezed in a few maps of places that you won't find in your ordinary atlas, such as um, Purgatory and Tre- Treasure Island. Some of the maps that we chose have actually already been studied quite extensively by historians of cartography or other researchers, although we generally found something new to say about them in the book. But a lot of them had never appeared in book form or had their stories told before. Very many of the maps in the book are hand-drawn or otherwise unique, and the printed maps that we have included are often rare or very rare. We grouped the maps chosen for the book into eight chapters, writing four of them each. Every chapter has a broad theme, although there are inevitably some overlaps between the themes. So we begin with maps from the medieval and early modern period. In the next two chapters, we look at maps of cities, and then by way of contrast, maps of the countryside and rural landscapes. Then we move on to military maps, and then sea charts. We have a chapter dedicated to European exploration of other parts of the world and colonial settlements, followed by one focusing on how maps have witnessed historical events. And then finally, we look at maps as worlds of the imagination. But let's begin at the beginning with some beautiful early maps. The world of early maps is full of the unexpected for us nowadays. So what we'll see is not necessarily what we expect. So with this map here, well, which way up? was it meant to be? North did not become fixed at the top of the map for several centuries after this. Um, So here it's actually at the lower edge of the map. But actually, although the cardinal points are written round the edge of the map, we think it may have been uh, made to be seen around a table by the parties in a legal case. So this is one of relatively few surviving medieval maps here, drawn on parchment, so you've got the distinctive shape of the animal's neck here, and it shows the area around Inklesmoor, which is near Scunthorpe on the Yorkshire-Lincolnshire borders, and actually it still looks more or less like this today. Well, it's got a railway line going across it, and um, it's beautifully imaginatively drawn here, I think, where the rivers sort of curl up like rolling up carpets at at the edge, giving a sort of island effect in the middle. And details show villages. Uh, This one has even got a bell in the church tower. Bridges and the central moor drawn like a tapestry. So the mapmaker here really gives us a striking vision of the medieval rural landscape. Early maps were usually made for a specific purpose, not for reference purposes as we're used to today. So they were made by hand when they were needed. This map shows the central common over which Cheam and nearby Surrey villages were in dispute. It focuses on trees in the common and paths across the common. Um, There are villages, um, some buildings. But just on the edge of this map, there is Henry VIII's Palace of Nonsuch. (laughs) Now, this was nearly built when this map was made, in in 1553 and it must have had an enormous impact on the landscape and yet because it wasn't relevant to the dispute for which the map was made it only features on the borders it's just a small image there you might want to turn your head to the right to see a more familiar image of Ireland since this map has got west at the top not north The visual nature of maps was really helpful in conveying information about far-off places. So this Elizabethan map of Ireland provided strategic information to statesmen in London. 
which England and Wales are just down, down here. Depiction of a sea battle here with broadsides uh, blazing lies next to detailed notes which show that this was actually a working document. There was one of it and it was passed around the court and they wrote notes about what, what was shown there. Now, that's the image on the front cover, but because the map title appears in the middle, this shows you what's actually underneath the title which is the landscape in the middle of Ireland, and it's been drawn with the lie of the land, which, of course, for defence purposes, you want to know, and there's details of the earls, um, and even the hand of Elizabeth's favourite statesman, um, Sir William Cecil. So early maps of the countryside were usually hand-drawn, and they became more standardised about 1580 when there were new professional map surveyors and there were books, textbooks for them to follow and new, new instruments. And this is a product of around 1580. This was made by a gentleman called John Lane, who actually um, put his name on the map. And again, that was a sign of new types of map, etc. So manuscript maps like this, they're often colourful. They can provide views of places, buildings, plants and even animals before the genre of English landscaping had begun, so uh, long before Constable, etc. And here, John Lane actually shows scale, which was a new concept. So details of the landscape include round the edge, the churches symbolise villages, and there's also uh, clay pits and gravel pits here. The map was made for a legal case, a dispute about where the rabbits in the rabbit warren were actually supposed to be. Detailed silhouettes were drawn like this, and they're all drawn on the yellow bit, which is the warren where they were supposed to be. However, the dispute continued after the map was made because rabbits cannot read maps. Now, is this a map or is it a chart? On paper, as in real life, the line between land and sea has blurred edges. This is the town and sankport of Rye at a pivotal point in its history when the waterways around the town were basically silting up, so ships were having to unload to small boats to, um, to, to land here. Um, and major, this shows that major coastal change is nothing new. Early maps can show both continuity and change, so that's the change. Um, here, the town of Rye actually has is, is much the same as it is today, and this gun port, uh, with all the guns facing out to a sea that was much nearer then, is still there today. So that's perhaps a good point to, to hand on to Andrew to tell us about um, the chapter on towns. Yes, as Rose just said, n now we're going to explore the urban jungle, which is the theme of chapter two. Cities are arguably the most pro profoundly human of any habitat, the most extreme examples of how people have striven to transform their surroundings. Urban areas also tend to have been mapped more frequently and in more detail than other places, not least because they are more densely populated, and hence there have been more people there who have needed maps or have been willing to pay for maps to be made. Many city maps also fulfil deep human needs to make sense of um, complex urban landscapes or to assert control over them, or they can be very effective expressions of civic pride. The image on screen here comes from an engraved 17th century map of the German city of Frankfurt am Main. It shows a place crammed with buildings and teeming with human life. 
It's the work of Matthias Merian the Elder, who was born in Switzerland but adopted Frankfurt as his hometown. He married his boss's daughter and eventually inherited her family's engraving business, and he's probably best known for his distinctive plans and views of towns and cities. This map reflects two of the commonest themes of the earlier city maps here in the archives. So that's maps showing defensive fortifications and maps as beautiful and prestigious objects. The Long Peninsula on your right is Valletta, the capital of Malta, and in the middle lies the Grand Harbour, and on your left are the famous three cities that were an important part of Malta's formidable defence works. When this map was made during the 17th century, Malta was ruled by the Knights Hospitallers, and it was they who had built all of these fortifications in the latter part of the 16th century. This detail shows the Hospitallers Church, which is one of Valletta's best-known buildings, and celebrated for the contrast between its plain exterior and highly decorated interior. It's now one of Malta's two cathedrals. The map was originally prepared for a French hospitaller called Anne de Nabera. Despite what one might think from the name, here he was actually a man. And here his coat of arms is shown on the map at the, at the bottom near the, near the middle. Our project print of the map is um, part of a compilation of plans and views of nearly 300 fortified European towns in a volume formerly owned by the War Office. This city map is also very beautiful in its, in its own way, but it was used for a specific practical purpose. It's a Chinese map of Chengdu, the capital of Sichuan province in southwestern China. Traditionally, Chengdu is said to have the shape of a turtle when viewed from above, but I can't see the resemblance myself. We have, have this map because British diplomatic staff in the city used it to try to find a new home. The British Consulate General in Chengdu burned down in January 1906, and the staff found it very difficult to find suitable alternative premises. Mr Goff, who was the acting Consul General, identified a few possible sites, and they were marked onto this map in blue pencil. This form of customization by drawing onto existing maps was a very common and effective record-keeping technique. In this case, it's also rather a neat visual metaphor for British presence in China. After a lot of re-angling re- over the cost, the purchase of Site A was eventually agreed, but there was also an, uh, the additional difficulty that foreign governments were not officially allowed to buy property from private vendors in China. And the usual way around this was to use British missionaries as intermediaries and then transfer the land into the government's name soon afterwards. And this had worked several times before quite happily, but in this case it all went horribly wrong. There was a misunderstanding involving some American missionaries who owned the plot next door and had wanted to buy the land themselves, and it turned into a very unpleasant row with allegations that the British were exploiting their missionaries as political agents. The sale fell through, and it was actually more than six years before the British were able to lease a permanent site for their consulate general in Chengdu. And here we see New York City at the time of the Stamp Act riot in November 1765. British colonists in North America at that time had to pay a special tax on many written or printed materials, and since they didn't have a vote, they bitterly resented it as taxation without representation. The argument that few men and no women back in the mother country could vote either cut no ice with the residents of the 13 colonies. After some stiff protests, including a four-day riot in New York, the government in London eventually backed down. New Yorkers are not to be trifled with. It's not too much of an exaggeration to say that this topographical view and the associated papers saved the career of a senior British naval officer. Commander Archibald Kennedy was responsible for protecting the government headquarters from the rioters, but he was unable to do so. He used this map to demonstrate to the Admiralty that he has tried his best and stationed his three ships in the most sensible places in the Hudson River. 
This view also reveals to us today how thoroughly what is now downtown Manhattan has changed since the mid-18th century. By the way, East is at the top of this map. If we look at the detail, D here is Bowling Green, which is still there at the southern end of Broadway, and B is the Battery, which is now the site of Battery Park. We can also see that most of the buildings were two or three storeys high, so there were obviously no skyscrapers in those days. Now, this is the oldest map to show Adelaide in South Australia. It was drawn in 1837. The city was planned as the capital of a model colony, because South Australia was intended to be a community of free settlers, not a penal colony for convicts like several of the earlier British settlements in Australia had been. The map was drawn either by or for William Light, who was the new colony's surveyor-general. And he chose this inland site and envisaged a city surrounded by parkland. The colony's governor, John Hindsmarsh, didn't like the site because he thought it was too far inland, but light prevailed over his objections and the town was built here as planned. Now, let's zoom in to look at the city site itself. Here you can see the five city squares that are a feature of central Adelaide. The middle one was named after Queen Victoria, who came to the throne whilst the city was being built. Two of the other squares are named after light and Hindsmarsh. Although pretty much the whole area covered by this map is now urban, the original core of Adelaide still consists of these two built-up areas surrounded by a ring of green space. One of the things that I like about this map is that it looks suitably archival with all of the surrounding writing. It also gives us a clear sense of the natural environment surrounding the new city. Urban areas don't exist or thrive in isolation, but in contrast to, and often in symbiosis with, the surrounding countryside. Boundaries between towns and countryside blur on the ground and they can also change over time. So as cities and towns grow um, over the centuries, earlier maps of these places can serve as a record of fields and woods which were then lost under a sea of brick and stone. They can also help us to picture how people lived and worked in these places many centuries ago. So in this chapter, we look at maps of the countryside and landscapes in time. And here on a Wiltshire map of over 400 years ago, the mapmaker gave us a very vivid picture. He drew uh, cattle and horses grazing on another rabbit warren. Um, But he also gave a wonderful depiction, I think, of the trees. So each tree um, is shown with the shape of its leaf, Um, as the canopy, so that's oak leaves, and there's also uh, willows, etc. So that gives us a rather wonderful evocation of the Wiltshire landscape um, in 1607. So let's have a look at some other depictions of, of landscape. Now, the archives holds the only remaining extant copy of this map. It's part of a 16-sheet map which was made to celebrate a seven-year engineering project to drain the fenlands of East Anglia. And so it was meant to turn flood-prone land into good farming soil. And here, drainage actually physically changed the face of the landscape, so straightened watercourses were made in place of rather curvy ones there. Now, this scheme actually remains on the ground, but the key to why there are no other copies lies in the coats of arms around the edge. The entire map has got 87 coats of arms of investors or adventurers, i.e. in a private venture company, and they were mostly parliamentarians. 
And that meant a limited shelf life, or maybe wall life, because it was a large map, once the monarchy was restored in 1660. And presumably all the other copies were destroyed. Um, This one was sent to the Duchy of Lancaster, which, because of its uh, uh, royal connections, um, has, has still survived. Now... I've shown this area around Denver not just because um, we've got quite a large American audience for our book, but nearby there's shown um, this oak under which Robert Kett in 1541 was supposed to have addressed a crowd of protesters against enclosure of common land. So it's a little detail um, where he started what's known as Kett's Rebellion. Maps of the countryside show what the mapmaker was commissioned to include, and the 17th and 18th centuries are known as the golden age of the estate map. And they're highly decorative, usually with lots of symbols of status and and power. This one was made by George Sargent, and he was one of that new class of uh, professional mapmakers. And it shows Audley End in Essex, just at the point in 1666 when it was acquired by Charles II as somewhere suitably palatial to stay when he visited nearby Newmarket racecourse. The newly royal property is presented with panache on this typical 17th century estate map with its decorative border and it's also got a wonderful compass indicator here. In fact, it shows ornamental and productive grounds um, so there's a rose garden as well as a brew house. But in, 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 fa- in reality, these maps only show a partial view. So they only show more attractive features and they don't uh, show dung hills and eyesores. The black and white photograph uh, made in 1933 um, was part of a scheme to capture images of important maps because after the First World War, there was a sense that they might be lost. And it was sent to Crown Estate Um, to hold with the map, which has now come here. And by an ironic twist of fate, it was those central records in Ordnance Survey in Southampton which were bombed and the central record was lost, whereas we still keep this particular copy here. This is part of a county map of West Sussex, uh, made in 1778, and that's got another link with Ordnance Survey because it was made by a couple of the foremost Ordnance Survey surveyors who, at this stage, they were working for the estate owner at Goodwood, um, shown on this map. So you've got the Hampshire border, which is down this side, and it shows also the South Downs up here. Thomas Eakle and William Gardner were the mapmakers, and they became some of the first Ordnance draftsmen in the Tower. Just an insight into the production of mapping, we also hold a rare survival of what are known as foul drawings, which are draft manuscript maps made in the field of parts of Sussex and Kent by Yeekel himself, who who drew the the engraved map. Uh, So that throws light on the map-making process. In effect, what we're seeing is partly doodles, where he, he tried out his pen on the map, he tried his handwriting, he did calculations, and he practiced words. So there's there's actually walnut and dang and and sometimes there's um, place names that he practiced there so you can see that there's uh, there's a process behind the making of the engraved landscape maps landscapes are shown sometimes on maps which weren't uh, made primarily for reference purposes so this one appears in admiralty records although it shows dartmoor prison 
um, in Devon with the hills of Dartmoor in the distance. While it is a detailed view of the prison and the, the details down the side give you a good idea what prison life was like, so it also shows the impressive landscape. But in fact, it was made to record the escape of a French officer prisoner of war. This is during the Napoleonic um, Wars. And Admiralty papers tell us that the name of the chap, and he was five foot six with uh, brown eyes and his face disfigured with uh, smallpox. So you get a real sense of uh, the, the story behind this. But if you want to find out the fascinating details of how he escaped from the prison in what disguise, and whether he was recaptured, you'll have to see the piece in the book. So maps allow us in imagination to step back into landscapes of times past. And next we turn to a particular type of landscape, that of military maps. Yes, so in um, chapter four, we are looking at the um, current autographies of conflict and combat. For many centuries, the armed services have been prolific consumers and creators of maps. Military cartography tends to be clear and precise, reflecting the discipline of life in the forces, rather than the horrors of warfare. Obviously, maps have their uses during preparations for conflict, such as when constructing fortifications, planning operations, or during training exercises. And they have been made and used in the midst of warfare, too. What is perhaps less obvious is that maps have very often been made in the aftermath of a battle or at the end of a war for purposes connected to assessing or reassessing the progress or outcome of the conflict. And this is actually one of the main reasons why military maps have been kept permanently and have come to the archives. The map on screen here was used by the official historians who wrote the government's published history of the First World War. It shows Allied forces and their planned manoeuvres at the beginning of the Battle of the Somme in July 1916. Now, this map is what we call a collage. It consists of parts of several printed maps joined together, with a lot of extra detail drawn and written onto the combined sheet. And you may be able to spot a stuck-on patch on the right-hand side, which was probably a correction. I've got three very different hand-drawn 19th-century military maps here to show you. This one of um, Brest in western France dates from the Napoleonic Wars at the beginning of the 1800s, and it's believed to be the oldest of our maps to show an air raid. (laughs) These are British air balloons launching rockets and flammable liquids onto French ships in the harbour below. This raid was purely hypothetical. No such military operation actually happened, as far as we know. The idea came from a civilian who was called Charles Rougier. Uh, now, he was half, half English and half French, but he was a passionate supporter of the British Armed Services. He was an enthusiastic inventor full of slightly impractical ideas, like a design for a carriage that made no noise. Now, this was actually probably one of um, Rougier's least wacky ideas, since it was technically quite possible. Similar rockets to the ones that he envisaged were used in warfare at the time, albeit launched from the ground or from boats rather than from the air and the French army had certainly been known to use manned balloons for reconnaissance purposes. The um, War war, war Office certainly took Rogier's idea seriously enough to have kept this map instead of throwing it away. This map shows the charge of the Light Brigade on the 25th of October 1854 during the Battle of Balaclava, which was part of the Crimean War. Now, the landscape looks forbidding, so I can see why Tennyson called it the, the Valley of Death. Here's a sideways view of the landscape, and you can see the charge in the background of this view. 
The story of the charge is well known. There was a misunderstanding about orders, which resulted in the Earl of Cardigan leading his cavalry in pursuit of what he thought were retreating Russian forces. They went from the lower left, here, across to the upper right, where the Russian artillery fired on them, and a lot of men and horses were killed. At the time, the popular view was that Lord Cardigan was the hero of Balaclava, whereas the Earl of Lucan, who was not just Cardigan's immediate superior and his rival, but also his brother-in-law, yes, the Earl of Lucan shouldered much of the blame. But some years later, another officer who had been there published a pamphlet that criticised Cardigan's actions, and Cardigan sued him for libel in the court of Queen's Bench. Now, we have this map because it was produced as evidence for the defence in that court case, and witnesses swore that it was accurate. Cardigan lost the case. The judge thought that the pamphlet was pretty much fair comment. As a contrast, this map offers a much more positive post-war assessment of an individual officer's actions in the field. It was made during the New Zealand Wars, a sequence of conflicts over land rights between British colonists and many of the indigenous Maori people. On the 11th of February 1864, some Maori forces launched a surprise attack on a group of British troops who were bathing at a ford in the Maangapiko stream. These dark blue dots are the Maori and the British are the red dots. Reinforcements were called in on both sides and it turned into a substantial battle, though not one that influenced the outcome of the war. The map was drawn by Charles Heafy, who was a major in the militia. He was a talented draftsman and he used his skills to good effect here. Heafy was actually quite seriously wounded during the battle whilst rescuing injured comrades, and the map was among the evidence that was used to support a successful application for him to receive the Victoria Cross. This is the VC. It's the highest gallantry award available to British service personnel, and Major Heafy was both the first non-regular soldier and the first colonial soldier ever to receive this honour. Turning to Chapter 5, Charting the Seas... Now, the British Isles, of course, are surrounded by seas, so a natural interest in sailing is reflected in the many sea charts in these archives. And for the book, we thus had a really enviable choice of manuscript charts by famous captains such as William Blythe of the Mutiny of the Bountiny fame, and here James Cook with this beautifully laid out chart of the Southern Hemisphere. It shows discoveries he made on the second voyage of the Resolution. Back in the 16th century, this chart was made in 1587, which was the year before the Spanish Armada tried to invade England. So it was a bit of a difficult period in uh, Anglo-Spanish relations, during which, as this chart shows, Sir Francis uh, Drake singed the King of Spain's beard by raiding the Armada, which was forming in the harbour of Cadiz, shown here on the less, which was the major port on Spain's south coast. So this chart, as well as explaining what happened on that day, actually has an amazing story because it was made by William Burrow, who was a well-known sea captain and explorer. He'd also been to the Northwest uh, Passage. He was Drake's second-in-command during the raid, um, and he criticised Drake's, uh, Drake's actions. But Drake didn't like this, so he confined Burrow to his cabin. And um, while there... In order to try and get out, um, Burrow drew this chart um, with a letter to send to the Lord High Admiral to explain why he'd made these comments. So although it's actually a view of events, it's Burrow's view of events, what happened that day. And perhaps it did actually have the effect that he wanted because, uh, in fact, he was let out of his cabin um, and he did go on to serve against the Armada in the following year. How do you know where you are? 
at sea? That's a question that's, uh, that's long vexed sailors. And the consequences of error are evident on this chart, which shows the scene of one of the greatest maritime disasters in British history. On the 22nd of October, 1707, four ships went down with nearly 2,000 men just in one incident, and it wasn't at, at war. The crews were coming back from an incident, and they thought that they were in the English Channel. But actually, they weren't in safe waters. They were off the Isles of Scilly, which are known for their rocks and for their very shallow waters. Um, and so, as shown here, these are two of the four ships, as the Association and the Rumney uh, went down uh, with loss of nearly all hands. Um, and here, Sir Cloudsy Shovel, who was um, the admiral of the day, his body was washed up on this shore. And this shipwreck and the Royal Navy losses so shocked the nation that it sparked calls for the Longitude Prize um, that to make sea, sea, seafaring safer so that um, future losses would, could be avoided. Now, despite the chart's serious nature, around the edge... Um, the margins have got these wonderful decorative elements, which I think must have been taken out of a copybook. Um, so presumably elephants don't, you know, even then didn't really um, live on the Isles of Scilly. Um, n neither did monkeys. Um, so we've got a sort of wonderful insight into a 1707 picture book, including a mermaid, which of course is a symbol of um, the, the lure of seafarers to their doom, next to the St Agnes Lighthouse, which should have saved them. Moving to Alexandria in Egypt around 1800, I say that because this map was made about 40 years later, so it's actually showing more than one Battle of the Nile, the Battles of the Nile, because it was made to inform a tricky political situation at that time. So at that point they wanted to know what had happened. And what had happened was, first of all, that Nelson had come in and his fleet had surrounded the French fleet in this line in a pincer movement. And this is where the boy stood on the burning deck, which was the son of the French captain, Casabianca. And he stood there because his father hadn't given him the command because he wasn't still alive um, and the ship exploded. So that's where that happened. Turning to several years later, there was still a problem here and British, um, British land forces had to move in and they had a lot of battles um, in the sand dunes and under the palm trees here and there are these cross swords which show that they actually, the British defeated the French among the ruins of Caesar's camp and there's a number of other antiquities of ancient Egypt showing around Alexandra, including, since we're in a map um, of the battles of the Nile, the plurals continue to Cleopatra's needles. And there were two of them at this point, one of which came to London and the other went to New York. A completely different part of the world. Now, some maps don't readily translate to book shape. So the large chart at the bottom is far too big and it's covered in white space because this is the chart by um, the naval captain and explorer William Parry showing his expedition in the Northwest Passage around 1820. So much of the chart's blank space, it symbolises the unknown regions which surrounded him and his crew as they sought to fix bearings and chart coastlines that appeared uh, and disappeared in the fog. So it, he, he actually wrote here um, that the coastline wasn't very clearly made there, but he hoped to obtain more accurate bearings later. But it did note um, there are narwhals and whales 
Um, there's a place where they put a bottle underneath a cairn on the coast and a dotted coastline to show where they thought it was, but the fog then appeared. So the perils encountered by um, searchers for the Northwest Passage were extreme. So the ship could be crushed by ice, they could be holed by an iceberg, they could just run out of rations, which is, of course, what happened to um, his friend John Franklin somewhat later in 1845. And not only is this chart a major achievement because Parry went further than any European explorer had at that point, but he also came back and brought his men back alive too. So exploration opened up new worlds which Britain and and other powers colonised. And so the archives contain many maps of places overseas. And this map shows an estate in Georgia. It's quite like estate maps at home in many ways. Um, You've got the decorative compass indicator. But instead it records different terrain. So uh, a swamp in the lower Altamaha River and it also records different crops. So there's oyster banks, there's sugar cane and hickory trees are growing there. When Europeans explored beyond the world known to them, they encountered peoples already living there. This map is entitled A Draft of the Creek Nation, and it records their lands as seen by an English mapmaker who was rescued by them from the French. And he used his knowledge of visiting their villages to depict... Um, in scenes round the edge, their life, including the the public square where all the men silhouetted here were talking and smoking their pipes. So that gives an insight into into village life. Another problem encountered with uh, European powers settling abroad was that they might actually give land grants to their own people, but on the same bit of land as happened in this map. That's why the map was made. But the mapmakers also included a lovely cartouche here. He'd obviously heard of mountain lions, but he hadn't actually seen one because this one appears to be more African than uh, coming from North America. The mapmaker had a lovely way of showing scale. So the, the child is putting dividers against the trunk of the tree to show the scale, um, and it's written on the leaf here. The letter in which this was sent... It gives an interesting insight into its creation because the governor explained that it had been made at a reduced scale from two larger ones to make it more portable because, of course, it had to be sent back to London. So often letters and other records together explain more than either alone. So this map shows where David Livingstone's party exploring in East Africa in 1859 travelled Um, And you get a sense of the hot African climate here with the the pen and the ink running. But the letter explains that this is actually the countryside in which he traversed where no white man had been before. This is that letter with the famous quote. Thus, this map and the letter make history, which leads us on to chapter 7. And we first thought about putting the book together. The concept of Chapter 7 actually began as really important or impressive maps, but very many of our maps are impressive or important. So the focus of the chapter revolved into um, being about how maps have captured historically significant moments, whether these have been of global impact or just of more local importance. The example on screen here shows Hong Kong, formerly a British colony. The Wuhan area on this map, known as the new, new, new Territories, was leased from China by the British for 99 years, starting from 1898. 
the map actually forms part of the text of the treaty that was signed between the UK and China to confirm the lease. Like the text of the treaty, it's bilingual in Chinese and English. I think of this next item as a kind of souvenir or memento of public rejoicing, not entirely unlike having a mug that was produced to celebrate a royal wedding. In this case, the occasion was the final defeat of Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo in 1815, and his subsequent exile. The map includes these two facsimiles of Napoleon's signature, one before he became Emperor of the French and the other one during his reign. Napoleon's place of exile, where he remained until his death in 1821, was this island, St Helena. It was chosen deliberately because of its extreme isolation in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, more than a thousand miles from Africa. Napoleon had, of course, escaped from his previous place of exile on the Mediterranean islands of Elba, and his enemies didn't want him to escape again. This map was actually rushed into production before Napoleon was delivered to the islands, and it marks Longwood House, here on the left, as the residence of the island's governor, and elsewhere, Plantation House, as Napoleon's residence. But when Napoleon arrived, he was given Longwood, and the governor lived in Plantation House. On a later edition of the map, the information was corrected, as shown here in the other enlargement on the right. This map was drawn in the mid-1870s, when the long straight section of boundary that separates Canada from the United States along the 49th parallel was being surveyed and delimited on the ground. The eastern end of this section of boundary is at the Lake of the Woods, and if I zoom in a bit, you can probably just make out some of the woods that lend their name to the lake. You can also see that the boundary in this area forms a sort of tooth shape. This is because the British and the Americans had agreed that the boundary would run through the northwesternmost point of the lake before either government knew exactly what shape the lake was. Hence there is this anomaly where a chunk of land on the Canadian side became an exclave of Minnesota in the USA. This area, called the Northwest Angle, is still part of the states today. We have many other records relating to the setting of this boundary, including some photographs. This one gives us some idea of how difficult the hard physical labour of cutting the boundary line actually was. The tools available at the time for cutting a 20-foot wide strip of land out of thick forest didn't allow for very precise measurements, so the boundary line on the ground is a little bit wobbly rather than dead straight. And it's a nice example of how drawing a line on a map is quite easy, but in the real world things are seldom quite so simple. And here is a map with some very significant lines on it. Adolf Hitler gave this map of Czechoslovakia to Neville Chamberlain during their meeting at Munich in 1938. This was the meeting that preceded Chamberlain's famous Peace for Our Time speech. The map is annotated to illustrate Hitler's demands to annex portions of Czech territory. The areas coloured blue in the print are where a large portion of the population were ethnic Germans or German-speaking. The hand-drawn dark blue lines are the, areas, uh, the um, edges of the areas that Hitler intended to occupy, and the red numbers are the dates when he plans to send in his troops. And in this case, it's the annotations that give the map its true historical significance. This note attached to the map explains its origin and its place within the archives. It became part of the Foreign Office Library's map collection because Sir Horace Wilson, a senior civil servant who had accompanied Chamberlain to Munich, recommended that the Foreign Office was the right place to have charge of it. And now for something completely different. This is a penguin shooting a sea monster with a bow and arrows. He, or she, we can't actually tell from looking at the, at the penguin here, is a doodle in the corner of a sea chart, which is drawn on tracing paper and portrays a naval operation on New Year's Eve 1943. Now, the sea battle was actually in the Arctic, so the penguin was a very long way from home. <laughs> For the artist and his fellow sailors, light touches of humour like this would have leavened what must have been very grim conditions. From the variety of maps that we've seen so far today, it's clear that there is a good deal of scope for map makers to be creative. 
The maps in Chapter 8 of our book particularly reflect this fact. Although government is a very serious business, the historical records in our care have their imaginative, quirky and humorous aspects, and hence the chapter title, Worlds of Imagination. This poster was used to advertise national savings in the late 1940s. It's a fine example of how maps can be used to attract attention and to make a point in a clear and compelling way. It's also imaginative in the sense of portraying an imaginary place, Treasure Island. Now, this is recognisably the same Treasure Island that's featured in the classic children's novel by Robert Louis Stevenson. It's been cunningly tweaked to update it for a mid-20th century audience and to match the needs of the advertising campaign. So, for instance, the treasure chest is filled with savings certificates instead of the more familiar Golden's Jewels. Those of you who are older than I am may recognise the pirate Captain Bob Savings' name and body shape as a reference to the shilling. And if you look very carefully at his nose, you'll see the shape of a pound sign. As archivists, we can, of course, only agree with the broader message that you should take good care of your values, treasures, just as we take good care of the maps and other records here. This is another poster featuring a map in its design, or actually it's the original artwork for a proposed British propaganda poster, probably dating from shortly before the Second World War began, and this particular example was never turned into an actual poster. Probably because its mix of two messages doesn't quite work. It's trying to link the threat that Nazi Germany posed to its neighbours with the need to save resources such as paper at home, and I don't think it really succeeds. Having said that, the way the design has been put together really is very clever indeed. It's a collage, and the map background is made largely out of newspaper, and the letters in the slogan, Don't Waste Paper, have been cut out of cardboard cigarette packets. AV Cut was a popular brand at the time, I believe. And by recycling materials in this way, the anonymous artist was certainly practising what he or she preached. This map of Africa was drawn by Sir Harry Johnston, a renowned British diplomat, colonial administrator and scholar. It dates from 1886, long before he became a sir when he was a young official in what is now Nigeria, and he used to write back to the Foreign Office complaining of boredom. Johnston used this map to speculate about the outcome of the then-ongoing scramble for Africa among among the European colonial powers, these nations that are listed in the key to the map. He was arguing that if Africa was carved up in a certain way, it would work better for the UK's political and economic advantage. The differences between Johnston's speculations and what actually did happen are most noticeable in West Africa, where territory was divided between the French, British, Germans, Portuguese, as well as independent Liberia, in a much more complex way than he had anticipated. So this is not the continent as it ever was, but Africa as one person imagined as it might become. This map is an early example of Johnston's interest in cartography. Later on, he drew many other maps, and he also collaborated with both the Royal Geographical Society in London and with the Edinburgh firm of John Bartholomew and Sons on the design and production of published maps. So that's an overview of some of the types of maps that we've got. But who made them? Well, a mix of people trained, so land surveyors, um, native people, so portraying the world in their own way, explorers, army and naval officers, colonial governors and administrators like Consul Johnson in the photo there, commercial enterprises such as sellers, um, and also official enterprises such as the the hydrographic office here. And of course we've also got non-British productions as well because they were all of interest to the British government. One of the earliest maps which is signed is by Henry Bullock, who was Master Mason of the King's Works at Windsor, for which he was paid sixpence a day. For this rather important strategic map, which shows the settling of the Anglo-Scottish boundary in 1552, he was paid 
20 nobles. So that's about um, one and a half thousand pounds today for special services, as they were called here. So that's an early example of a named, named map maker. The archives hold some rare examples of mapping by indigenous peoples. So this is a copy of an American Indian chief's map, which was made on paper to be presented to the governor of Carolina. Um, but you can see that they've actually kept the shape of the animal skin on which the original was made. Another of the native people's maps is the first known Aboriginal map drawn in pen and ink on paper made by a gentleman called Galliput. Uh, he came from King George Sound on the west coast of Australia. And this was recorded by um, a government official who gave him pen and paper. Um, and he drew a story of a camp here and how the married men gathered the single men. So the married men are here, gathered the single men. They went fishing. They went to the kangaroo ground. And we think that might be a kangaroo there. Um, and then they came back to the campfire. So all this was written down by the official, so thus translating um, what Galliput said. And it shows how he could adapt um, new technology to communicate his view of the world. The archives holds many published charts, such as this one, which is a plate in the Atlas Maritimus of John Seller um, of around 1675. And at this stage, um, Atlas is could be include bespoke plates for particular customer orders and this is quite a rare chart of the arctic and the particular hand coloring also varied so in this case the particular coloring has proved what we provided what we think might be one of the earliest images of santa claus with his distinctive red and, and white fur perhaps and there are also, of course, um, famous uh, map makers amongst our, our collections. This example is believed to be the work of someone who was trained in making maps, but is much better known for his political career. This was George Washington, the first president of the United States. As a young man, Washington was originally trained as a land surveyor, but when he made this map, he was employed as a British Army officer in the Virginia militia. In 1753, when it was made, most of the area shown on this map was in British hands, but the French, who were based further north, had their eye on it too, and Washington was tasked with leading a small party to deliver a letter from the governor of Virginia to, to the French military commander demanding a French withdrawal from the region. On his way north in November, he spent um, several days at Logstown, which is around here, holding some talks with the Native American allies of the British, the Seneca and the Oneida people. And he then continued um, towards the top right of the map, where he met the French commander at one of these two forts, this one, I think, in December. Neither side was willing to negotiate, and Washington returned to Virginia. And the French did, in fact, invade the region soon afterwards, although the British took it back a few years later. In his report on his journey, Washington recommended building a defensive fort here at the confluence of two rivers. And that's what later grew into um, what we now know as per, per Itzburg. Just as a quick aside, this is a medieval seal used by Robert de Washington, who was one of George Washington's English ancestors. And if you look carefully, you may be able to see that there are stars and stripes on the seal, which are, said, which are believed to have inspired the design of the American flag. We thought it would be interesting to look at how two or three maps of the same place can portray it very differently, if they were made at different times or for different purposes. And where better to illustrate this than London? 
This map shows the River Thames between London in the west and the estuary in the east. It's quite faded now and not always easy to read. We think it was displayed on a wall in the government's office of works for many years, which would have exposed it, exposed it to too much light. But when it was newly made in 1662, it must have been breathtakingly impressive. And I'll zoom in so you can see a little bit of it more clearly. Uh, the map was commissioned specially by the government and was originally owned by the Navy Board. Samuel Pepys would have used it. It's more of a work of art than a practical tool, and it's, it's lavishly produced in ink and watercolour and with gold paint on the borders, and it features scenic views like this one of the, of, of the City of London as seen from the south. But it's also very accurate and detailed. In some ways, the map, the map is the perfect metaphor for Restoration London, the best that contemporary science, scholarship and culture could offer, but perhaps just a little bit brash and over the top. Here are the Royal Arms, which are one of the map's decorative features, and the sense of um, national and civic pride displayed on the whole map is unmistakable, even three and a half centuries later. If we move forward in time, so here's London in 1803. The portion on screen is actually just the middle of a much larger map. The built-up area of London, the sh shaded in light orange, was still relatively small then. Uh, the quality and detail of this um, hand-drawn hand -drawn map are exceptionally high, particularly the woods, hills and open spaces. And we can partly explain this quality by the fact that it was drawn by two officer cadets from the Royal Military Academy in Woolwich. And so the map provides evidence of the level of professional training that the British Army had begun to develop for technical roles like map making at the time. The pink blocks shown here are defensive works, and they were part of a ring of defences that were designed to protect London from an expected invasion by Napoleon. And we'll just look quickly at a couple of other parts of the map. So um, this is Kensington again with some um, defence works. Uh, this area was beyond the fringes of the built-up part of London at the time. And over here, Islington and Pentonville are really set, um, little villages semi-detached from the capital. Um, so from this map, I get a real impression of the edges of London as a kind of transitional zone between the town and the countryside, with some ribbon development along the major roads. And now this item is one of our most famous maps, as well as one of the most unusual. It's a leather glove with a map painted onto it. The glove is a registered design from the records of the Board of Trade, and we believe it was designed by a man called George Shove, who probably had visitors to the Great Exhibition of 1851 in mind. Here's the Crystal Palace in Hyde Park, which is the central feature of the map. I like to think that Shove's vision was just a little bit too far ahead of the technology of his time, and we can see his glove as a bit like the Victorian forerunner of a smartphone app, a map that you can hold in the palm of your hand. And I can't resist just showing you a couple more details. So here's St Paul's Cathedral on the middle, middle finger and the ring finger. And over here is Buckingham Palace. As the flag is flying, we can presume that Queen Victoria is at home. From London to the world, uh, three views, very different views. This is the world in 1602, and this is one of only two maps which survive in the world. Um, the other one's in the Newbury Library in Chicago. Um, and it's showing the view of the world and the state of knowledge of the world in 1602, which includes, at the lower edge, of course, um, there's an enormous southern continent, which is what they believed at that time, covered with hypothetical beasts, griffins, etc. And this was part of a, a larger broadsheet, which included a celestial map at the top. You can just see, at the lower edge of this, a view of purgatory, and when we were discussing which offers of book launches we would get um, and whether we'd get the ones about which we'd written the maps, I was thinking, oh, well, Andrew gets New York and I get purgatory. <laughs> so 
leaving that image of the celestial um, heavens there, moving to a very different view of the world made in 1927. This was made for the Empire Marketing Board's poster subcommittee, and it actually features Britain in red at the centre of the world. So their job was actually to, you know, obviously market the, the empire. There is a cosmic context in that in the heavens, you've got the, the newfangled plane taking to the air there. And because the artist was MacDonald Gill, you've also got some evidence of polar bears who were in the wrong continent. And they only discovered this by the time he'd, it was too late. It was on the plate. It would have been too expensive to clear it. Um, so he added um, these polar bears singing, I mean, why are we here? We should be at the North Pole. <laughs> And there's even one singing, It's a Long Way to Tipperary. (laughs) To read the whole story about this special projection, deep in the minutes of an Empire Marketing Board subcommittee file, you need to read the book. And our third world map with a very different story is this one. Yes, um so compared with a McDonald Gill's fabulous creation, this map of the British Empire looks very conventional at first glance. But actually, it isn't. It was printed during the First World War as German propaganda, and it was intended to portray the British as being greedy and land-grabbing. The text of the legend describes Great Britain as having conquered, captured, or taken each of her colonies, either from the native populations or from other, Europe- or from other European powers, who are implied to have been the rightful owners. The colonial office staff who acquired this copy of the map actually subverted the German publisher's original intention by um, penciling in the outlines and names of former German colonies like Tanganyika here that um, came under British control after the war. So this map is really doubly subversive and represents a different aspect of creative cartography from MacDonald Gill's artwork. More often than not, it's the wider context of other records within the archives that can supply the story of where a map came from, why it was made, and how it was originally used. And in fact, we estimate that roughly 80% of our maps are actually integral parts of other records, rather than being in separate map collections. This particular sketch map is a great example. It comes from the war diary of the London Irish Rifles for May 1918. At that time, they were fighting German and Ottoman forces in what was then called Transjordan, now Jordan. The pages of handwritten and typed text within the war diary revealed that this operation and attempt to advance towards Amman was not a success for the British and their allies. For our last few examples, we just want to highlight some of the varied contexts of maps within the archives. I have maps like this one were made mostly during the late 1830s and the 1840s, and they cover about two-thirds of England and Wales. They were made individually, and each one is different. Some, like this one, which shows Burton O'Connor in Cornwall, are really works of art. The detail here is wonderful, I think. These maps were needed to support a reform of the ancient system of tithes, which were originally a kind of church tax. For each tithe map, there is a related textual document called a tithe apportionment, which contains information about each numbered parcel of land shown on the map, including its owner and its occupier and what the land was used for. So this is a page from the apportionment for Beconic. Tithe maps and apportionments are very popular with people researching family history or local history, and if you want to learn more about them, Rose gave a talk here a couple of years ago, which is available to listen to as a podcast on our website. This Japanese woodcut dates from around 1853, and it shows the city that was then called Edo and is now called Tokyo. At that time, the de facto government of Japan was the military shogunate, dominated by the Tun Okagawa family, whose crest was this yellow floral symbol. 
At this time, the um, shogun's previously very isolationist foreign policy had started to be relaxed, and Westerners' knowledge of and interest in Japanese art, culture and society was growing rapidly. This map came to us as part of a journal kept by a Royal Navy surgeon named Charles Courtney. We believe that Courtney acquired the map in about 1859 while serving on board HMS Highflyer during the Second Opium War with China. The same journal includes several other maps and some Chinese anatomical diagrams like this one, which reflects Courtney's interest in traditional East Asian medicine. We could think of this diagram as being a map of the human body. Now, Courtney wrote quite a lot about the relationship between geography, climate and human health, but we think that he collected this map because of its beauty and cultural interest rather than for any more practical reason. And my final example actually has two separate stories lying behind it, one relating to its content and the other to its rather unusual context in the archives. Nowadays, this town is called Nove Zamki, and it lies in Slovakia, but for a long time it was part of the Kingdom of Hungary, and it was called Ersekuva. On this map, it's actually labelled with its German name, which is Neuhäusel. As with a lot of places in Central Europe, the preferred name has depended on who's been in charge at the time. Here, the town is shown under siege from the Turkish army in 1663. The siege was successful, and the town became part of the Ottoman Empire. But the Austrian Habsburgs, who controlled much of Western Hungary at the time, won the area back about 20 years later. The map survives because the British government confiscated it from a man called Colonel John Scott in the spring of 1682. Scott had a rather colourful and often dubious career, including periods as a sailor, a fraudster, a mapmaker, a fur trader in North America, a soldier in the Dutch army and as a spy. It's suspected that he was a triple agent employed by the English, French and Dutch. Now, Scott was accused of having conducted, and I, 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 quote, I quote from one of the related papers, dangerous correspondence with foreign powers. He was usually very good at avoiding punishment for his misdemeanours, and as so often, he has survived this incident relatively unscathed. However, quite a few of his letters and papers were seized from his lodgings in London, and here is a list of some of them. If you're sitting near the front and you have good paleography skills, you may be able to read what it says at the bottom of the list here, which is 15 maps, great and small. So today we've had a view of rather more than 15 of our maps, great and small, um, at this stage, we'd like to thank um, those who've helped in the, in the, in, with the book, our friends, family and colleagues here, our image team, our team at Bloomsbury. And of course, we'd like to thank you all for coming to our talk. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.